Well, good morning. Don't good morning me. Did you read this? Did you read this sermon? Just, just wasted my whole thing here. Exactly. That's exactly right, John. Thank you. And and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say the same thing you just heard. Okay. Better, but still, I'm gonna say the same thing you just heard. I'll tell you how it's supposed to be done. Not only that, I don't know who's gonna have the honor of of uh, uh, remembering and, and, and talking about the life of Esther. Maybe me, maybe Lynn, maybe somebody else. But that story was one of the ones I was going to use when we did that. I don't need to be. Are you going to be here next service? All right. I'm going to leave early. Go home. That's where I get it, you know? influenced by, uh, by my dad. We get influenced by a lot of people. I, and we learn stuff. We learn stuff throughout the years. I, have you ever gotten to this place and point in your life when you reflect upon your life and you think, you know, I thought I would know more by now. I think about that all the time. I'll, I'm going to turn ancient here in a couple weeks. Here. I'm going to turn 40, right? One foot in the grave. And I thought I'd know more by now. I thought I'd be a lot smarter than this, you know? I was smarter years ago. I'll tell you, when I was 16, I knew everything anyway, right? You probably thought the same thing. Not, not that I knew everything. You probably thought you knew everything, right? And, I, I, you know, I, it just seems like you ought to grow and you ought to, you ought to know more and you ought to understand more. But sometimes, sometimes... We forget. Sometimes as we go through life, we forget some of the things that we knew and we understood and we lived out and we realized when we were younger. And really, some of the things or maybe some of the goals that we ought to have is to get back to some of those things that we forgot. I don't think it's any mistake that, um, or any coincidence that Jesus says, we should have a childlike faith, a childlike faith. And as we grow and we age, the world happens, and we get confused, and we get bombarded with a bunch of stuff, and, and then we've got our families, and then we've got our jobs, and then we've got our little kingdoms in front of us. And it just, it takes us away, I think, often from some of the things that we knew when we were younger. Maybe our job, maybe our goal is to, in many of those areas, to come full circle back to what we knew when we were children. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you've given us. We thank you, Father, for the, for the joy that we have, just the laughter that we get to have here on Sunday mornings as we, as we worship together and just thank you for your goodness. Father, I ask that you'll help us to see in the life of David, what it means to walk in faith, to trust who you are and what you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we talk about David, this justification by faith. Justification by faith. That is to be made and considered and treated as righteous by our trust 
that we put in Jesus Christ. That's what justification by faith means. And just like we've been doing throughout the, uh, the other weeks of this series, we're going to jump around to a lot of verses, okay? So we can start in 1 Samuel 13, but we're going to get off of that pretty quick, and all of these verses will be uh, on the screen. You're welcome, to, you're welcome to turn with us, though. A few weeks ago, or quite a few weeks ago, we talked about Saul. We had this big, uh, big series on Saul and, and then the things that Saul did, the things that Saul didn't do, and this fact that Saul wrestled with some of the same things we wrestle with, that is pride. The big thing in Saul's life, the big problem in Saul's life was that Saul cared about Saul. Uh, that's it. I mean, even these, even these moments where he uh, feigned to worship uh, the God of, of creation, he still cared mostly about himself, and he relied upon his own ingenuity, relied upon his own strength, what he wanted to do, when he wanted to do it. And in 1 Samuel 13, we find this in verse 14, Samuel talking to Saul. We, again, we saw this a few, a few weeks ago. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said, as he's talking to King Saul. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Now, that's an important line. If you had, <clears throat> he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all, all time. But now, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And this, if you know a little bit about Scripture, if you know a little bit about the history of Israel, this is David. David is the man that God raises up. David is the man that is after his own heart. David is this second king of Israel. But David is not perfect. We want to think David's perfect. We want to think David's got it all together, especially if we compare him to Saul. Don't compare yourself to others. Don't compare yourself to others. Compare yourself to the morality of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we take our best day and compare it to other people's worst day, don't we? That's, that's what we do. But if we compare David to Saul, we tend to think that David is perfect, that David's wonderful. Well, we've been talking about some of these heroes in Scripture. Abraham, we realized, is not perfect. And yet he's called a friend of God. You may think of Abraham as father or friend. Father of this nation, of the Israelite nation, or friend of God. But we found out Abraham was far from perfect. Moses, the guy, the guy God chose to lead the Israelite people, never actually saw the promised land. Even with all of his mistakes, he continued, though, to lead the people. We realize Moses is not perfect. And today, we look at David. Multiple times, Jesus himself is called the son of David. The son of David, and rightfully so. Jesus comes, his, his humanness comes from the line of David. David is his father, his ancestor. And Jesus is referred to as the son of David as a special title. At no point does Jesus say, oh, don't call me that. <laughs> I, I know the kind of person David was and some of the things he did. Don't call me son of David. No, he's referred to as son of David often, and he welcomes the title. When people refer to him as son of David... What they're doing is understanding, they're recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah to come. He is the Savior that's going to come. Because throughout the prophets, they referred to this coming Messiah 
as the offspring of David. And so people, people announce, they, they, they call out to Jesus, son of David. Matthew 15, 22, a Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter's demon possessed and suffering terribly. Matthew 20, verse 30, two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. We knew from many, many years before that Jesus was going to be this descendant of the king of Israel. Jesus himself even uses this title as the offspring of David. At Christmas time, we looked at the very last title that Jesus gave himself, and it's one of star, this bright morning star. But in that same line, in that same sentence, at the end of Revelation, chapter 22, that's the very last book, the very last chapter in the Bible, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. Now, he can pick anything he wants. He's defined by many different things. He's got many different titles. What does he choose? He says this, I am the root and the offspring of David. Root and offspring, that's neat too, right? I am the cause and the effect of David. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. The root and the offspring of David. What is David? I mean, if we think about it, if we don't know anything else about David, he must be a heck of a guy, right? I mean, he must be great. He must be this one because we know we can't do it with Abraham. We can't do everything that Abraham did because Abraham did some bad stuff. We can't do everything that Moses did because Moses did some bad stuff. Well, maybe, maybe David. Maybe David's this one who is justified by what he does, justified simply by how he lives and having nothing to do with faith in Jesus Christ, but simply worked hard enough. Who is David? Well, first of all, I think we're probably all on the same page. The first thing that comes to mind is David the giant slayer, right? David the giant slayer. And most of you know the story. In, in the time of David, the, the arch enemy of Israel was the Philistines. They never got along. They were always arguing. They were always fighting. The Philistines hired some mercenaries, and one of those mercenaries was Goliath. Big dude, all right? I don't know what it's like to be a big guy, but this was a big guy. He was tall. He was strong. He was a giant, right? And day after day, the Philistine army would line up on their side of the battlefield. The Israelite army would line up on their side of the battlefield. And they would not engage in battle. They would yell at each other. They would talk to each other. They would taunt each other, right? And eventually, Goliath comes forward from the side of the Philistines and he yells at the Israelites. Day after day, he says, just send one man over here. Me and him, we'll go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. We'll go head-to-head, -to -head, and if he wins, then you get the entire Philistine army. They'll all be your slaves. They'll all be your, your captives. And day after day after day, no one approached Goliath. Maybe it's because they didn't have uh, the right size. Maybe, maybe they weren't strong enough. Maybe they weren't uh, good enough. Maybe they weren't courageous enough. Maybe I don't know what it was. I do know that they didn't have faith enough. They didn't trust God enough to confront 
a giant in their life. See, that's what it takes to confront giants, doesn't it? It takes trust. It takes trust in a God who loves us, a God who made us, created us by name, and says, I've got a life for you. And you're going to face these giants in your life. Well, David shows up. David shows up to the battlefield, and he's not in the army. So we know he's under 20 years old. In in ancient Israel, once you got to be 20 years old, you had to serve in the army for a certain amount of time. Okay, That, that was the rule. David shows up. He's not old enough to be in the army. And he's providing provisions to his brothers. And while he's there, the same thing happens. The Israelite army lines up. The Philistine army lines up. They're staring at each other. Goliath comes over. He starts yelling at the Israelites. He's making fun of them. He's making fun of the God of Israel. And no one's doing a thing. And I just picture David on the front line with everybody else. And as you look down the line, you see one head poke out like this. And he looks down. And he looks down this way. And nobody's moving. Nobody's confronting this giant that defies the living God. And so what does David say? I'll fight him. I'll fight him. I'll fight him. Why? Because he is defying the one and only living God. Here's what David's saying. I will put my life in the hands of God. And I will confront this giant. That's what he's saying. No more, no less. I will put my life in the hands of God. Because David's not strong enough, big enough, fast enough, whatever it is. Now he becomes a great military leader. But at this point, he's a young boy. He says, I will put my life in the hands of God. And I'll confront this giant. I don't know how old David was at the time, but you know, it strikes me. This actually, it doesn't have anything to do with the message, but I, it's just something that's been bothering me for about 40 years. When, not quite 40 years, right? We're not there yet. Um, he was about 15 years old, roughly. Okay? And one of the big things that people talk about with David is how he was a child confronting the giant. And how this is so amazing that a 15 or 16-year-old would confront a giant. I just think that anybody who says that forgets what they were like when they were 15 or 16 years old, right? I mean, if he really is 15 or 16 years old, he's probably looking at that giant and saying, I'll fight him. I'll fight him. I don't care what you say, I'll fight him. That's probably what he's thinking. At least that's the way I was when I was 16. I knew everything there was to know. I'll fight him. But he does, and he runs out there, and he ends up destroying the giant with a sling. That's the sidearm of the day, right? The rifle is the bow and arrow. He has the sidearm of the day, shoots a, shoots a rock right through his head, cuts off Goliath's head with Goliath's own sword, gets a little bloody right there. But it's because he's defying the God of Israel. David says, I will put my hands, or my life, in the hands of God himself. Goliath was a dangerous enemy, and at 15 years old, David was able to confront that enemy, and he was able to slay that enemy. And one of the things you learn as you go through life, I've had conversations about this over the past couple weeks, the enemy that you see is very dangerous, 
But the enemy that you cannot see is very deadly. Very deadly. There were enemies in David's life that he couldn't see. Lust. Lying. A murderous heart. Pride. And yet we read that David was a man after God's own heart. How is that even possible? Can we have some closure on this? Acts 13, 22 says this. Paul's talking about David. He says this. After, moving, after removing Saul, he made David their king. That is, God made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. The answer's in the verse. He will do everything I want him to do. Remember when Saul got removed, Samuel said, you did not keep the Lord's command. Interesting that Samuel did not lay out all of Saul's sins. He didn't lay out all of Saul's problems. What he laid out was his inability to live out his faith, his trust in God. He will do everything I want him to do. Yes, David will do things God does not want him to do. And you've probably done those things as well. But remember, we are justified by our faith, our trust in God. We are defined, if you've given your life to Jesus, by our trust in Jesus, not by our mistakes. If we do not trust Jesus... You are defined by your failures. I don't want to be defined by my failures because I've got a lot of them. But if we believe in Jesus, if we give our lives to Jesus, if we put our lives in the hands of Jesus, just as David did, I'm going to put my life in the hands of God. We are defined by our trust, our faith in Jesus Christ. But here is also a great example of faith that must be lived out. You've heard it once today. We're going to go back into it. There's no such thing as faith that is not lived out. That's impossible. It doesn't exist. Church, you you just got to get this in your heads. All right? It doesn't exist. You can want it to exist all you want, but it doesn't exist. The sun's going to rise in the east and set in the west. You can want it to rise in the west and set in the east all you want, but it ain't going to happen. There's no such thing as trust in Jesus Christ that is not lived out. Abraham with Isaac. Moses leading the Israelites, David doing what God wants. James sums this up, James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? I wanted to get this into the message because up until now, we've looked at Abraham, we've looked at Moses, and we've realized that it's their trust, their faith in God that justifies their life. But it's not simply a belief in the existence of God. It is living out this faith in their lives. James 2.19. I love this line. He says, you believe that there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. What sets us apart? What is this faith that justifies? If even Satan believes in Jesus Christ, believes that there is Jesus... What sets us apart? It's living out, responding to, walking in faith. 
I'm excited about next week. Next week, we, look, we, we ask the question, what's the difference? We look at Judas Iscariot, we look at Peter, and we look at all the things they did. And without understanding this, we look at just their lives and we say, there really is no difference. He says, you foolish person, you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? We already talked about that. We talked about that way back in Genesis. Here we are in James near the end of Scripture talking about the same thing. It's almost like this Bible fits together. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. This is a man, David, after my own heart. What does God say? He will do everything I want him to do. Yes, but God, he's going to make a lot of mistakes. But that's not how you're defined if you trust Jesus. Learn from your mistakes and then move on, church. Don't let them weigh you down. Don't let you think you have to earn your salvation. You see, this following God, this living out his faith, David did very well in many areas of his life. He fought the giant. He knew this is what God wanted, and he did it acting on faith. But he had other battles in his life. He had enemies he couldn't see. First of all, let's look at his lust. 2 Samuel 11, 2-4, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. This is after he's older now. Now he's older, now he's growing, now he has become the king of Israel. He's walking around on his palace one night. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. At no time, by the way, do we see the Bible suggest that this was some kind of ploy by Bathsheba. At no time do we see this was a a design by her to, to seduce David. It was simply a coincidental moment. And that's what it could have remained. It could have been just that. The moment could have been David walking on his palace. He looks over, he saw, recognizes beauty, moves on with life. No harm, no foul. Sends word the next day, hey, by the way, I'm up on my palace, roof at night, draw the curtains, right? No, it's the second look, right? And this isn't a message about adultery, it isn't a message about lust, but it is about the failures in David's life. It's the second look that leads to loss of control. It's the second thought that leads to a loss of control. It's the second thought that leads to loss of integrity and loss of honor. It's the second look that turns another person into an object. That's all that is. You know, the Old Testament said, don't take another man's wife. Well, the woman, don't take another man's husband. Once it got to Jesus, Jesus says, yeah, that's all well and good, but I'm going to raise the bar a little bit. I want you to do away with lust completely. I don't want you to turn somebody else into an object just to, just to get gratification from them. First Samuel 17, 34 through 36, this goes back to an interaction between David and Saul right before he faced the giant. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, this uncircumcised Philistine, 
will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. David did well when there was a beast in front of him. He lost when there was a beast within him. That's the fight. That's the battle. That's when faith is shown. That's when faith is lived out. All this other stuff, look, that's fine. But the real battle, the real battle is in the heart, and that's where you live out your trust in Jesus Christ. He fails in his lust, and then he fails in his adultery and his theft. 2 Samuel eleven four. as we continue with this story, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Adultery, and that's what this is. Adultery and it's theft. David steals Uriah's wife. This isn't a romantic picture here. He steals from this loyal soldier. David steals his home. He steals his marriage. He steals his family. He steals his reputation. That's what David's doing here. There's, isn't there anything beautiful about this? 2 Samuel eleven five. then the woman conceived... And sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Are you familiar with the phrase man up? You're probably familiar with that, right? I've said that before and I've been told that before. Okay? Man up. Right now is about the time for David to man up. Isn't that what he was saying to the Israelite army when he was a child? Didn't he forget this? Hey, man up, guys. Man up. It's time to walk out there. Time to take your medicine. Man up. Oh, but these are bigger battles, David. And I've seen people in my life man up, throw themselves literally on the mercy of God, in the hands of God through confession. They take their medicine and then they move on with a life of integrity. It's something to be honored, frankly. That's what real faith is. That's what real, real trust is. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Throw yourself and all that you are at the foot of the cross. Reveal what there is to know about yourself and let God's justice fall. But David fails in this battle yet again. And it moves on to the murder or the lie or the cover-up. David calls Uriah from the front line and tells him to spend some time at home. You've been out there on the front lines working hard. Come on home, Uriah. Spend a fortnight at home letting nature take its course. And he thinks that will cover up his sin. But David underestimates the integrity of Uriah. 2 Samuel eleven eleven. Uriah said to David, the ark, that is the ark of the covenant, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I possibly go to my house to eat, drink, make love to my wife, as surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. I'll tell you, this is Uriah. This is one of David's men, one of his fighting men as a king and a shepherd. David ought to be laying down his life for this man rather than stealing his life. But that's what he's doing. And how is Uriah repaid for his integrity? Most of you know the story. He gets killed. And David does it. He doesn't wield the actual weapon, but he sets it up so that Uriah is murdered. 
2 Samuel 11, 14 and 15, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And these were the plans on how to kill Uriah. You ever read something and you get, your mind just kind of goes fuzzy for a second. It, it, it shakes you to your core. This is one of those things. David sends with Uriah the instructions on how to murder Uriah. And he faithfully takes it back to his commander. Can, can you ever be forgiven for something like this? Do you have, do you have one of those? And it might not be exactly this, right? But do you have one of those sins, one of those things, one of those, that something in the back of your mind? It says, could I ever really be forgiven for this? Does Jesus really love me that much? One thing that might help is look at your children, right? If you have children. Not a whole lot they could do to take away your love, is there? Or to get rid of your love. Well, then calamity strikes. The child that Bathsheba had ends up dying. And David is cut to the core. You know why? You know why such a harsh punishment? I want you to listen to this one closely. God will not allow someone he loves so much to be deprived of discipline. God will not allow someone he loves that much to be deprived of discipline. And so he will discipline David because he loves him that much. Finally, we get to David's pride. This is a separate issue in David's life. David struggles with the very thing that plagues so many. Satan entices David to sin against God, and God, God allows the attack. He allows Satan to attack David in the mind, in the heart. And he does this because God means to teach Israel a lesson. I mean a real lesson, not just vengeance. I mean he wants to teach. He wants to instruct Israel and teach them a lesson. First Chronicles 21, uh, verse 1, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. We'll talk about why that's bad here in a second. Well, we know God allows Satan to do this. In 2 Samuel 24, that same story is told. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Now, we don't know what this major communal sin was in Israel, but it must have been pretty bad. It's not recorded anywhere in Scripture. God's pretty angry. He's pretty upset with this nation, and he says, look, you guys have to learn. You have to be taught. I love you too much to withhold my discipline. And so David gives in to this temptation from Satan. In order to teach, God allows David to be tempted by Satan. Now, David had every choice in the world, whether or not to give in to this temptation or, or not give in to this temptation. I get tempted every day. That's not God hating me. That's giving me the opportunity to act in faith or to act in pride. The temptation here was one of pride. David counted the fighting men. This is bad. And here's why. Remember, this is the Old Testament. We're under Old Testament law here. A man only had the right to count or number what belonged to him. This is David near the end of his reign. He only had the right to count what belonged to him. And what does David say? I want to count Israel. This is why God's a little miffed. 
He says, no, no, David, that, that doesn't belong to you. You're a steward here. That belongs to me. Make you think the next time you talk about giving your life to Christ. Giving your life to Christ. Jesus says, look, that doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to me. You're a steward of this. So you watch how you perform your stewardship. Exodus 30, 12, when you take a census, this is God telling uh, Moses in the Old Testament, telling him when he's uh, writing down the law, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life. That's an offering for the counting um, at the time he is counted. And then no plague will come on them And when you number them. It was up to God to command a census in Israel. And if David counted, he should only have done it by God's command, receiving this ransom. Even Joab, the commander of his army, Joab wasn't a great guy. Even Joab knew this was wrong. First Chronicles 21.3, but Joab replied, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. David told him, go count, the, go count the troops. And Joab said, okay, look, may the Lord multiply your troops, David. Okay, He knew what David was getting at. I, I, I hope there's a bunch of troops out there for you, David. He says, but aren't all of these people your subjects? Why, David, do you want to do this? Why should you bring guilt on Israel? But Joab had to follow the, the, uh, the king's command, so Joab goes out and counts. First Chronicles 21.6, but even Joab doesn't count everybody. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin, those two tribes, because they weren't to be counted as fighting men, because the king's command, what, was repulsive to him. This was an egregious sin by David. This command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. And it's here, church, it's here, near the end of David's life, near the end of his reign, that perhaps we see David has finally learned his lesson, that he has come now full circle back to the man he was when he was 15 years old, that he needed to remember, that he learned long ago and needed to remember he takes the census and immediately, Scripture says, David is overcome with guilt. Overcome with guilt. He's learning. He's growing. He's walking in faith. He's trusting God more now. He's completely cut to the heart. We didn't see that with Bathsheba until he was told about it by Nathan. David thinks, what have I done? He confesses his sin before God and begs to be forgiven. Again, isn't that what he should have done when he had an affair with Bathsheba instead of killing Uriah, he throws himself into the hands of God. Again, this is accepting responsibility and faith in the love and forgiveness of God. This is what David should have done throughout his years. First Chronicles 21, 9 through 12, the Lord said to Gad, Gad is another prophet. He goes to David and he says, hey, look, the Lord's going to punish you. Go ahead and pick your punishment. The Lord said to Gad, David, seer, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine, that is drought, no crops, so forth, throughout the land. Three months of being swept away before your enemies with their swords overtaking you. Or three days of the sword of the Lord, days of plague in the land with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Now then, decide how I should answer the one who sent me. And I love David's answer. David says this, 1 Chronicles 21, 13. David said to Gad, 
I am in deep distress. He knew he'd sinned. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into human hands. Church, this is what he should have done with Bathsheba. This is what he should have done with Uriah. Instead of committing murder, this is what you should do in your life. Let me fall into the hands of a merciful God. By the way, isn't that what he started out doing as a child? As he's running across the battlefield, God, I am in your hands. I don't know what men might do, but as a guilty man, I trust God's justice, his righteousness, his mercy, and his love. That's what accepting Jesus is. And he finally gets the picture near the end of his life. We have now come full circle, and he's going back to what he knew at the beginning. At the very end of all of this, As the plague is coming upon Israel, David finally, in a a miraculous moment, he sees a vision of the angel of God and he confronts the angel of God as this country is being destroyed around him because of his sin. David said to God in 1 Chronicles 21, 17, I like the way the NIV says this, David says, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I, the shepherd, have sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Lord my God, let your hand fall on me and my family. Do not let this plague remain on your people. Don't miss the symbolism here. I, the shepherd, let it fall on me. And let the rest of these people live. David was a man after God's own heart. This is is finally the character of Jesus' ancestor, his ancient father. Let it fall on me. That's what it means to grow in faith. That's what this means. You can see through the life of David growing in this trust of God. That's why Jesus doesn't mind being called the son of David. Because David isn't defined by his mistakes. He's defined by a moment just like this. So are you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the lessons that we learn in the life of David. But we we thank you for even David moving through lessons in his life. We thank you that he is this beautiful picture of the shepherd. uh, Finally, in his life, choosing to lay down his life for the rest of the sheep. Father, we thank you that uh, we can see so many characters throughout Scripture, but we also ask that though we see them sin, we might not carry out those same sins. We can reflect upon our life that our faith can be lived out, but we know that we are justified, justified by our faith, our love, our trust in Jesus Christ. It's in his name. Amen. Please stand and sing.
David and Abraham and Moses, do you think they lived eternally with Jesus Christ? Do you, do you think that? I mean, in all, in all seriousness, right? All the bad stuff they've done, right? It's no different with you. It's no different with you, your family, your friends, the people you know. Accept the truth and love and forgiveness of Christ. And you're as more certain, you can be more certain about that than you are about Moses and Abraham and David. That you'll live eternally with Christ. And you'll talk to Esther again, so that's going to be a whole new exciting thing, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you've given us. We thank you that Jesus has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. Help us. Help us to believe that. Help us to give our lives to Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I know I feel like dancing.